Unseen, Unfeared by Francis Stevens. I had been dining with my ever-interesting friend Mark Jenkins at a little Italian restaurant near South Street. It was a chance meeting. Jenkins is too busy, usually, to make dinner arrangements. Over our highly seasoned food and sour, thin red wine, he spoke of little odd incidents and adventures of his profession. Nothing very vital or important, of course. Jenkins is not the sort of detective who first detects and then pours the egotistical and revealing details of achievement in the ears of every acquaintance, however appreciative. But when I spoke of something I'd seen in the morning papers, he laughed. Poor old Doc Holt. Fascinating old codger. To anyone who really knows him. I've had his friendship for years, since I was first on the city force and saved a young assistant of his from jail on a false charge and they had to drag him into the poisoning of this young sport, Ralph Peeler. Why are you so sure he couldn't have been implicated? I asked. But Jenkins only shook his head with a quiet smile. I have reasons for believing otherwise, was all I could get out of him on that score. But, he added, the only reason he was suspected at all is the superstitious dread of those ignorant people around him. Can't see why he lives in such a place. I know for a fact he doesn't have to. Doc's got money of his own. He's an amateur chemist and dabbler in all different sorts of research work. And I suspect he's been guilty of showing off. The result? They all swear he has the evil eye and holds forbidden communion with invisible powers. Smoke? Jenkins offered me one of his invariably good cigars, which I accepted, saying thoughtfully, a man has no right to trifle with the superstitions of ignorant people. Sooner or later, it spells trouble. Did in this case... They swore up and down that he sold love charms openly and poisoned secretly, and that together with his living so near to somebody else, got him temporarily suspected. But my tongue's running away with me as usual. As usual, I retorted impatiently. You open up with all the frankness of a Chinese diplomat. He beamed upon me engagingly and rose from the table with a glance at his watch. Sorry to leave you, Blaisdell, but I have to meet Jimmy Brennan in ten minutes. He so clearly did not invite my further company that I remained seated for a little while after his departure and then took my own way homeward. Those streets always held for me a certain fascination, particularly at night. They're so unlike the rest of the city, so foreign in appearance with their little shabby stores, always open until late evening, their unbelievably cheap goods displayed as much outside the shop as in them and hung on the fronts and laid out on tables by the curb and in the street itself. Tonight, however, neither people nor stores in any sense appealed to me. The mixture of Italians, Jews and a few Negroes, all mostly bareheaded, unkempt and generally unhygienic in appearance, struck me as merely revolting. They were all humans, and I, too, was human. In some way, I did not like the idea. Puzzled a trifle, for I am more inclined to sympathise with poverty than accuse it, I watched the faces that I passed. Never before had I observed how stupid, how bestial, how brutal were the countenances of the dwellers in this region. I actually shuddered when an old clothes man, a grey-bearded Hebrew, brushed me as he toiled past with his barrow. There was a sense of evil in the air, a warning of things of which it is wise for a clean man to shun keep clear of. The impression became so strong that before I had walked two squares, I began to feel physically ill. And it occurred to me that the one glass of cheap Chianti which I had drunk might have something to do with the feeling. 
he knew how the stuff had been manufactured, or whether the juice of the grape entered at all into its ill-favoured composition. Yet I doubted if that were the real cause of my discomfort. By nature, I'm a rather sensitive, impressionable sort of chap. In some way, tonight, this neighbourhood, with its sordid sights and smells, had struck me wrong. My sense of impending evil was merging into actual fear. This would never do. There is only one way to deal with an imaginative temperament like mine. Conquer its vagaries. If I left South Street with this nameless dread upon me, I could never pass down it again without a recurrence of the feeling. I should simply have to stay here until I got the better of it. That's all. I paused on a corner before a shabby but brightly lit little drugstore. Its gleaming windows and the luminous green of its conventional glass show jars made the brightest spot on the block. I realised that I was tired, but hardly wanted to go in there and rest. I knew what the company would be like at its shabby, sticky soda fountain. As I stood there, my eyes fell on a long white canvas sign in front of me, and its black and red lettering caught my attention. See the great unseen. Come in. This means you. Free to all. Museum of fakes, I thought, but also reflected that if it were a show of some kind, I could sit down for a while, rest, and fight off this increasing obsession of non-existent evil. That side of the street was almost deserted, and the place itself might well be nearly empty. I walked over, but with every step my sense of dread increased. Dread of I knew not what. Bodiless, inexplicable horror had me as in a net, whose strands, being intangible, without reason for existence, I could no, by no means throw off. It was not the people now. None of them were about me. There, in the open, lighted street, with no sight nor sound of terror to assail me, I was the shivering victim of such fear as I had never known was possible. Yet still I would not yield. Setting my teeth and fighting with myself as with with some pet animal gone mad, I forced my steps to slowness and walked along the sidewalk, seeking entrance. Just here there were no shops, but several doors reached in each case by means of a few iron-railed stone steps. I chose the one in the middle, beneath the sign. In that neighbourhood there are museums, shops and other commercial enterprises conducted in many shabby old residences such as these were. Behind the glazing of the door I had chosen, I could see a dim pinkish light, but on either side the windows were quite dark. Trying the door, I found it unlocked. As I opened it, a party of Italians passed on the pavement below and I looked back at them over my shoulder. They were gaily dressed, men, women and children, laughing and chattering to one another, probably on their way to some wedding or other festivity. In passing, one of the men glanced up at me, and involuntarily I shuddered back against the door. He was a young man, handsome after the swarthy manner of his race, but never in my life had I seen a face so expressive of pure malicious cruelty, naked and unashamed. Our eyes met, and his seemed to light up with a vile gleaming, as if all the wickedness of his nature had come to a focus in the look of concentrated hate he gave me. He went by but for some distance I could see him watching me, chin on shoulder, till he and his party were swallowed up in the crowd of marketers further down the street. Sick and trembling from that encounter, 
Merely of eyes, though it had been, I threw aside my partly smoked cigar and entered. Within there was a small vestibule, whose ancient tessellated floor was grimy with the passing of many feet. I could feel the grit of dirt under my shoes, and it rasped on my newly quivering nerves. The inner door stood partly open, and going on, I found myself in a bare, dirty hallway, and was greeted by the sour, musty, poverty-stricken smell common to dwellings of the very ill-to-do. Beyond, there was a stairway, carpeted with ragged grass matting. A gas jet, turned low inside a very dusty pink globe, was the light I had seen from without. Listening, the house seemed entirely silent. Surely this was no place of public amusement of any kind whatever. More likely it was a rooming house, and I had, after all, mistaken the entrance. To my intense relief, since coming inside, the worst agony of my unreasonable terror had passed away. If I could only get in some place where I could sit down and be quiet, probably I should be rid of it for good. Determining to try another entrance, I was about to leave the bare hall when one of the several doors along the side of it suddenly opened and a man stepped out into the hall. Well, he said, looking at me keenly, but with not the least show of surprise at my presence. I, I beg your pardon, I replied. Um, the door was unlocked and I came in here thinking it was the entrance to the exhibit. Um, what, what do they call it? The Great Unseen. The one that's mentioned on that long white sign. Can you tell me which door is the right one? I can. With that brief answer, he stopped and stared at me again. He was a tall, lean man, somewhat stooped, but possessing considerable dignity of bearing. For that neighbourhood, he appeared uncommonly well-dressed, and his long, smooth-shaven face was noticeable because, while his complexion was dark and his eyes coal-black, above them the heavy brows and his hair were almost silvery white. His age might have been anything over the three-score mark. I grew tired of being stared at. If you can and won't, then never mind, I observed a trifle irritably and turned to go. But his sharp exclamation halted me. No, he said. No, uh, no, forgive me for pausing. It was not hesitation, I assure you, uh, to think that one, one even, has come. All day they pass my sign up there, pass and fear to enter. But you're different. You are not of these timorous, ignorant, foreign peasants. You ask me to tell you the right door. Here it is, <laughs> here. And he struck the panel of the door, which he closed behind him, so that the sharp yet hollow sound of it echoed up through the silent house. Now it may be thought that after all my senseless terror in the open street, so strange a welcome from such so odd a showman would have brought the feeling back full force. But there is no emotion stronger to a certain point than fear. This queer old fellow aroused my curiosity. What kind of museum could it be that he accused the passing public of fearing to enter? Nothing really terrible, surely, or it would have been closed by the police. And normally I'm not an unduly timorous person. So it's in there, I asked, coming toward him. And I'm to be sole audience? Come, that'll be an interesting experience. I was half laughing now. The most interesting in the world said the old man, with a solemnity which rebuked my lightness. With that, he opened the door, passed inward and closed it again, 
in my very face. I stood staring at it blankly. The panels, I remember, had been originally painted white, but now the paint was flaked and blistered, grey with dirt and dirty finger marks. Suddenly it occurred to me that I had no wish to enter there. Whatever was behind it could scarcely be worth seeing, or he would not have chosen such a place for its exhibition. With the old man's vanishing, my curiosity had cooled, but just as I again turned to leave, the door opened, and this singular showman stuck his white-eyebrowed face through the aperture. He was frowning impatiently. Come in, come in! And promptly he withdrew his head, then once more closed the door. He has something in there that he doesn't want should get out, was the very natural conclusion which I drew. Well, since it can hardly be anything dangerous, and he's so anxious I should see it, here goes. And with that, I turned the soiled white porcelain handle and entered. The room I came into was neither very large nor very brightly lit, and in no way did it resemble a museum or lecture room. On the contrary, it seemed to have been fitted up as a quite well-appointed laboratory. The floor was linoleum-covered. There were glass cases along the walls whose shelves were filled with bottles, specimen jars, graduates and the like. A large table in one corner bore what looked like some old sort of camera, and a larger one in the middle of the room was fitted with a long rack filled with bottles and test tubes, and was beside littered with papers, glass slides and various paraphernalia which my ignorance failed to identify. There were several cases of books, a few plain wooden chairs, and in the corner a large iron sink with running water. My host of the white hair and black eyes was awaiting me, standing near the larger table. He indicated one of the wooden chairs with a thin forefinger that shook a little, either from age or eagerness. Sit down, sit down. Have no fear of that you will be interested, my friend. Have no fear at all of anything. As he said it, he fixed his dark eyes upon me and stared harder than ever. But the effect of his words was the opposite of their meaning. I did sit down, because my knees gave from under me. But if in the outer hall I had lost my terror, now it returned twofold upon me. Out there the light had been faint, dingily roseate, indefinite. By it, I had not perceived how this old man's face was a mask of living malice, of cruelty, hate and a certain masterful contempt. Now I knew the meaning of my fear, whose warning I would not heed. Now I knew that I'd walked into the very trap from which my abnormal sensitiveness had striven in vain to save me. Again I struggled within me, bit at my lip till I tasted blood, and presently the bind paroxysm plast. It must have been longer in going than I thought, and the old man must have all that time been speaking, for when I could once more control my attention, hear and see him, he had taken up a position near the sink, about ten feet away, and was addressing me with a sort of platform manner, as if I had been the large audience whose absence he had deplored. And so, he was saying, I was forced to make these plates very carefully, to truly represent the characteristic hues of each separate organism. Now, in colour work of every kind, the film is necessarily extremely sensitive. Doubtless you're familiar in a general way with the exquisite transparencies produced by colour photography of the single plate type. He paused, and trying to act like a normal human being, I observed, I saw some nice landscapes done in that way um, last week at an illustrated lecture in um, Franklin Hall. 
He scowled and made an impatient gesture at me with his hand. I can proceed better without interruptions, he said. My pause was purely oratorical. I meekly subsided, and he went on in his original loud, clear voice. He would have made an excellent lecturer before a much larger audience, if only his voice could have lost that eerie, ringing note. Thinking of that, I must have missed some more, and when I caught it again, he was saying, as I have indicated, the original place in the final picture. Now, many of these organisms are extremely hard to photograph, and microphotography in colour is particularly difficult. In consequence, to spoil a plate tries the patience of the photographer. They're so sensitive that the ordinary dark room ruby lamp would instantly ruin them, and they must therefore be developed either in darkness or by a special light produced by interposing thin sheets of tissue of a particular shade of green and of yellow between lamp and plate, and even that will often cause ruinous fog. Now, I, finding it hard to handle them so, made numerous experiments with a view to discovering some glass or fabric of a colour which should add to the safety of the green without robbing it of all efficiency. All proved equally useless, but intermittently I persevered until last week. His voice dropped to an almost confidential tone, and he leaned slightly toward me. I was cold from my neck to my feet, though my head was burning. I tried to force an appreciative smile. Last week, he continued impressively, I had a prescription filled at the corner drugstore. The bottle was sent home to me, wrapped in a piece of what I first took to be whitish, slightly opalescent paper. Later, I decided that it was some kind of membrane. When I questioned the druggist seeking its source, he said it was a sheet of paper that was around a bundle of herbs from South America, that he had no more and doubted if I could trace it. He'd wrapped my bottle so because he was in haste and the sheet was handy. I can hardly tell you what first inspired me to try that membrane in my photographic work. It was merely dull white with a faint hint of opalescence except when held against the light. Then it became quite translucent and quite brightly prismatic. For some reason, it occurred to me that this refractive effect might help in breaking up the actinic rays, the rays which affect the sense of emulsion. So that night, I inserted it behind the sheets of green and yellow tissue next to the lamp and prepared my trays and chemicals, laid my plate holders to hand, turned off the white light and turned on the green. There was nothing in his words to inspire fear, it was a wearisomely detailed account of his struggles with photography. Yet, as he again paused impressively, I wished that he might never speak again. I was desperately, contemptibly in dread of the thing he might say next. Suddenly he drew himself erect. The stoop went out of his shoulders. He threw back his head and laughed. It was a hollow sound, as if he laughed into a trumpet. I won't tell you what I saw. Why should I? Your own eyes shall bear witness, but this must child say, so that you may better understand later. When our poor, faultily sensitive vision can perceive a thing, we say that it is visible. When the nerves of touch can feel it, we say that it is tangible. Yet I tell you there are beings intangible to our physical sense, yet whose presence is felt by the spirit and invisible to our eyes merely because those organs are not attuned to the light as reflected from their bodies. But light passed through the screen, which we are about to use, has a wavelength novel to the scientific world, and by it you shall see with the eyes of the flesh that which has been invisible since life began. Have no fear! 
he stopped to laugh again, and his mirth was yellow-toothed, menacing. Have no fear, he reiterated, and with that stretched his hand toward the wall. There came a click, and we were in black, impenetrable darkness. I wanted to spring up, to seek the door by which I had entered and rush it out of it, but the paralysis of unreasoning terror held me fast. I could hear him moving about in the darkness, and a moment later a faint green glimmer sprang up in the room. Its source was over the large sink, where I suppose he developed his precious colour plates. Every instant, as my eyes became accustomed to the dimness, I could see more clearly. Green light is peculiar. It may be far fainter than red, and at the same time far more illuminating. The old man was standing beneath it, and his face, by that ghostly radiance, had the exact look of a dead man's. Beside this, however, I could observe nothing appalling. That, continued the man, is the simple developing light of which I have spoken. Now watch, for what you are about to behold, no mortal man but myself has ever seen before. For a moment he fussed with the green lamp over the sink. It was so constructed that all the direct rays struck downward. He opened a flap at the side. For a moment there was a streak of comforting white luminance from within. Then he inserted something, slid it in slowly, and closed the flap. The thing he put in, that South American membrane it must have been, instead of decreasing the light, increased it, amazingly. The hue was changed from green to greenish grey, and the whole room sprang into view, a livid, ghastly chamber, filled with, overcrawled by, what? My eyes fixed themselves, fascinated on something that moved by the old man's feet. It writhed there on the floor like a huge repulsive starfish, an immense armed, legged thing that twisted convulsively. It was smooth, as if made of rubber, it was whitish-green in colour, and presently it raised its great round blob of a body on tottering tentacles, crept towards my host, and writhed upward. Yes, climbed up his legs, his body, and he stood there, erect, arms folded, and stared sternly down at the thing which climbed. But the room, the whole room was alive with other creatures than that. Everywhere I looked, there were centipedish things with yard-long bodies, detestable furry spiders that lurked in shadows and sausage-shaped translucent horrors that moved and floated through the air. They dived here and there between me and the light, and I could see its brighter greenness through their greenish bodies. Worse, though, far worse than these, were the things with human faces. Mask-like, monstrous, huge, gaping mouths and slit-like eyes. I find I cannot write of them. There was that about them which makes their memory, even now, intolerable. The old man was speaking again, and every word echoed in my brain like the ringing of a gong. Fear nothing. Among such as these, you do move every hour of the day and the night. Only you and I have seen, for God is merciful, merciful and spared our race from sight. But I am not 
merciful. I loathe the race which gave these creatures birth, the race which might be so surrounded by invisible, unguessed, but blessed things, and chooses these for its companions. All the world should see and know. One by one shall they come here, learn the truth, and perish. For who can survive the ultimate of terror? Then I too shall find peace, and leave the earth to its heritage of man-created horrors. Do you know what these are? Whence they come? His voice boomed now like a cathedral bell. I could not answer him, but he waited for no reply. Out of the ether, out of the omnipresent ether, from whose intangible substance the mind of God made the planets, all living things, and man. Man has made these, by his evil thoughts, by his selfish panics, by his lusts, and his interminable, never-ending hate, he has made them, and they are everywhere. Fear nothing, they cannot harm your body, but let your spirits beware. Fear nothing, but see where there comes to you its creator, the shape and the body of your fear. And as he said it, I perceived a great thing coming toward me, a thing but consciousness could endure no more. The ringing, threatening voice merged in a roar within my ears. There came a merciful dimming of the terrible, lurid vision, and blank nothingness succeeded upon horror too great for bearing. There was a dull, heavy pain above my eyes. I knew that they were closed, that I was dreaming and that the rack full of coloured bottles, which I seemed to see so clearly, was no more than a part of the dream. There was some vague but imperative reason why I should rouse myself. I wanted to awaken, and thought that by staring very hard indeed I could dissolve this foolish vision of blue and yellow-brown bottles. But instead of dissolving, they grew clearer, more solid and substantial of appearance, until suddenly the rest of my senses rushed to the support of that sight, I became aware that my eyes were open, the bottles were quite real, and that I was sitting in a chair, fallen sideways so that my cheek rested most uncomfortably on the table which held the rack. I straightened up slowly and with difficulty, groping in my dulled brain for some clue to my presence in this unfamiliar place, this laboratory that was lighted only by the rays of an arc light in the street outside its three large windows. Here I sat, alone, and if the aching of cramped limbs meant anything, here I had sat for more than a little time. Then, with the painful shock which accompanies awakening to the knowledge of some great catastrophe, came memory. It was this very room, shown by the street lamps raised to be empty of life, which I had seen thronged with creatures too loathsome for description. I staggered to my feet, staring fearfully about. There were the glass-floored cases, the bookshelves, the two tables with their burdens, and the long iron sink, above which, now only a dark blotch of shadow, hung the lamp from which had emanated that livid, terrifically revealing illumination. Then the experience had been no dream, but a frightful reality. I was alone here now. With callous indifference, my strange host had allowed me to remain for hours unconscious, with not the least effort to aid or revive me. Perhaps, hating me so, he'd hoped that I would die there. At first, I made no effort to leave the place. Its appearance filled me with reminiscent loathing. I longed to go, but as yet felt too weak and ill for the effort. 
Both mentally and physically, my condition was deplorable, and for the first time I realised that a shock to the mind may react upon the body as vilely as any debauch of self-indulgence. Quivering in every nerve and muscle, dizzy with headache and nausea, I dropped back into the chair, hoping that before the old man returned I might recover self-control sufficient to escape him. I knew that he hated me, and why, as I waited, sick, Miserable, I understood the man. Shuddering, I recalled the loathsome horrors he had shown me. If the mere desires and emotions of mankind were daily carnified in such forms as those, no wonder that he viewed his fellow beings with detestation and longed only to destroy them. I thought too of the cruel, sensuous faces I had seen in the streets outside, seen for the first time as if a veil had been withdrawn from eyes hitherto blinded by self-delusion. Fatuously trustful as a month-old puppy, I'd lived in a grim, evil world where goodness is a word and crude selfishness the only actuality. Drearily, my thoughts drifted back through my own life, its futile purposes, mistakes and activities, all of the evil that I knew returned to overwhelm me. Our gropings toward divinity were a sham, a writhing sunward of slime-covered beasts who claimed sunlight as their heritage, but in their hearts preferred the foul and easy depths. Even now, though I could neither see nor feel them, this room, this entire world, was a crawl with the beings created by our real natures. I recalled the cringing, contemptible fear to which my spirit had so readily yielded and the faceless thing to which the emotion had given birth. But then, abruptly, shockingly, I remembered that every moment I was adding to the horde since my mind could conceive only repulsive incubi and since while I lived I must think, feel, and so continue to shape them, was there no way to check so abominable a succession? My eyes fell on the long shelves with their many-coloured bottles. In the chemistry of photography there are deadly poisons, I knew that. Now was the time to end it. Now, let him return and find his desire accomplished. One good thing I could do, if one only, I could abolish my monster-creating self. My friend Mark Jenkins is an intelligent and usually a very careful man. When he took from Smiler Callahan a cigar which had every appearance of being excellent, innocent Havana, the act denoted both intelligence and caution. By very clever work, he had traced the poisoning of young Ralph Peeler to Mr Callahan's door, and he believed this particular cigar to be the mate of one smoked by Peeler just previous to his demise. And if, upon arresting Callahan, he had not confiscated this bit of evidence, it would have doubtless been destroyed by its regrettably unconscientious owner. But when Jenkins shortly afterward gave me that cigar as one of his own, he committed one of these almost inconceivable blunders, which, I think, occasionally forced upon clever men to keep them from overweening vanity. Discovering his slight mistake, my detective friend spent the night searching for his unintended victim, myself, and that his search was successful was due to Pietro Marini, a young Italian of Jenkins' acquaintance, whom he met about the hour of 2am returning from a dance. Now, Marini had seen me standing on the steps of the house where Dr Frederick Holt had his laboratory 
and living rooms, and he stared at me, not with any Ill, Ill intent, but because he thought I was the sickest looking, most ghastly specimen of humanity that he had ever beheld. And, sharing the superstition of his South Street neighbours, he wondered if the worthy doctor had poisoned me as well as Peeler. This suspicion he imparted to Jenkins, who, however, had the best of reasons for believing otherwise. Moreover, as he informed Marini, Holt was dead, having drowned himself late the previous afternoon. An hour or so after our talk in the restaurant, news of his suicide reached Jenkins. It seemed wise to search any place where a very sick-looking young man had been seen to enter, so Jenkins came straight to the laboratory. Across the fronts of those houses with the long sign with its mysterious inscription, See the Great Unseen, but not at all mysterious to the detective. He knew that next door to Dr Holtz, the second floor had been thrown together into a lecture room, where, at certain hours, a young man employed by settlement workers displayed upon a screen steroptikon views of various deadly bacilli, the germs of diseases appropriate to dirt and indifference. He knew, too, that Dr Holt himself had helped the educational effort along by providing some really wonderful lantern slides done by microcolour photography. On the pavement outside... Jenkins found the two-thirds remnant of a cigar, which he gathered in and came up the steps, a very miserable and self-reproachful detective. Neither outer nor inner door was locked, and in the laboratory he found me alive, but on the verge of death by another means than he had feared. In the extreme physical depression following my awakening from drugged sleep and knowing nothing of its cause, I believed my adventure fact in its entirety, my mentality was at too low an ebb to resist its dreadful suggestion. I was searching among Holt's various bottles when Jenkins burst in. At first I was merely annoyed at the interruption of my purpose, but before the anticlimax of his explanation, the mists of obsession drifted away and left me still sick in body, but in spirit, as happy as any man may well be who has suffered the delusion that the world is wholly bad and learned that its badness springs from his own poisoned brain. The malice which I had observed in every face, including young Marini's, existed only in my drug-affected vision. Last week's popular science lecture had been recalled to my subconscious mind, the mind that rules dreams and delirium, by the photographic apparatus in Holt's workroom. See the great unseen had assisted materially, and even the corner drugstore before which I had paused with its green-lit show vases had doubtless played a part. But presently, following something Jenkins told me, I was driven to one protest. If Holt was not here, I demanded, if Holt is dead, as you say, how do you account for the fact that I, who've never seen the man, was able to give you an accurate description of who you admit to be Dr. Franklin Frederick Holt. He pointed across the room. See that? It was a life-size bust portrait in crayon, the picture of a white-haired man with bushy eyebrows and the most piercing black eyes I'd ever seen, at least until the previous evening. It hung facing the door and near the windows, and the features stood out with a strangely lifelike appearance in the white rays of the arc lamp just outside. Upon entering, continued Jenkins, the first thing you saw was that portrait, and from it your delirium built a living, speaking man. 
So there are your white-haired showmen, your natural fear, your colour photograph, and your pretty green gollywogs, all nicely explained for you. Thank God you're alive, Blaisdell, to hear the explanation. If you'd smoked the whole of that cigar... Well, never mind. You didn't. Now, my very dear friend, I think it's high time that you interviewed a very real flesh-and-blood doctor. I'll phone for a taxi. Don't, I said. A walk in the fresh air will do me more good than 50 doctors. Fresh air? There's no fresh air on South Street in July, complained Jenkins. But he reluctantly yielded. I had a reason for my preference. I wished to see people, to meet face to face, even such stray prowlers as might be about at this hour, nearer sunrise than midnight, and rejoice in the goodness and kindliness of the human countenance, particularly as found in the lower classes. But even as we were leaving, there occurred to me a curious inconsistency. Jenkins, I said, you claim that the reason halts when I first met him in the hall appeared to quite twice close the door in my face was because the door never opened until I myself unlatched it. Yes, confirmed Jenkins, but he frowned, foreseeing my next question. Then why, if it was from the picture that I built so solid, so convincing a vision of the man, did I see Holt in the hall before the door was open? You confuse your memories, retorted Jenkins rather shortly. Do I? Holt was dead at that hour. But I tell you I saw Holt outside the door. And what was his reason for committing suicide? Before my friend could reply, I was across the room, fumbling in the dusk there at the electric lamp above the sink. I got the tin flap open and pulled out the sliding screen, which consisted of two sheets of glass with fabric between. Dark on one side, yellow on the other. With it came the very thing I dreaded. A sheet of whitish, parchment-like, slightly opalescent stuff. Jenkins was beside me as I held it at arm's length toward the windows. Through it, the light of the arc lamp fell, divided into the most astonishingly brilliant rainbow hues. And instead of diminishing the light, it was perceptibly increased in the oddest way. Almost one thought that the sheet itself was luminous, and yet, when held in shadow, it gave off no light at all. Shall we put it in the lamp again and try it? asked Jenkins slowly, and in his voice there was no hint of mockery. I looked him straight in the eyes. No, I said, we won't. I was drugged. Perhaps in that condition I received a merciless revelation of the discovery that caused Holt's suicide. But I don't believe it. Ghost or no ghost, I refuse to ever again believe in the depravity of the human race. If the air and the earth are teeming with invisible horrors, they are not of our making. The study of demonology is better let alone. Shall we burn this thing or tear it up? We've no right to do either, returned Jenkins thoughtfully. But you know, Blaisdale, there's a little too darn much realism about some parts of your dream. I haven't been smoking any doped cigars, but when you held up to that light, I'll swear I saw, well, well, never mind. Burn it. Send it back to the place it came from. South America, said I. A hotter place than that. Burn it. So we struck a match and we did. It was gone in one great white flash. 
A large place was given by morning papers to the suicide of Dr. Frederick Holt, caused, it was surmised, by mental derangement brought on about his unjust implication in the Peeler murder. It seemed an adequate reason, since he'd never been arrested, but no other was ever discovered. Of course, our action in destroying that membrane was illegal and rather precipitate. But, though you won't talk about it, I know that Jenkins agrees with me. Doubt is sometimes better than certainty, and there are marvels better left unproved. Those, for instance, which concern the powers of evil. <laughs>